All right, welcome back to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, architect. Pleasure to be here with you again. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to listen into this podcast series where we talk through what it feels like to collaborate with an architect and what is involved in realizing an architectural project. We talk through the creative thinking behind the design of spaces and places. And today I'm going to be pushing some technical boundaries, slight exaggeration, but hear me out. One, literally, I am going to be playing some music on guitar to illustrate an idea. That's number one. And number two is that this idea relates to something I've mentioned in previous episodes, which is the fact that ideas for architecture ideas for the design of spaces or site-specific spaces and places can come from as much within the profession as outside of the profession. Now, the resolution of ideas still comes from resources and skill sets, learnings and techniques we've got from within the profession, but the idea itself can come from outside the profession. I've mentioned this before. I won't be the first to mention it. It won't be the first episode, sorry, the last episode where I mention it, I'd love to have guests on to illustrate this point. Today you have me, and I'm talking, of course, because I'm playing a piece of music to the relationship between music and architecture. And I'm going to do that by talking about an idea that I had for placing musicians, working through ideas for performance and decentralizing performance or uh, opening, deconstructing performance and then give examples of how that might sound, hence playing the piece of music, and then totally step away from all of that and talk to a space, quite a beautiful space, a site-specific place, sorry, site-specific space that has this idea without any reference to sound or music. So there's a little bit to get through. You're listening to Michael Clark, architect, on what is and what could be. So first of all, the premise for this idea, it came from an experience I had at my father's house when I was minding it in the second last year of university. So I was deep into a project, trying to resolve a project, prepare for a submission whilst minding my father's house. And of course, the expression minding a house is interesting and it's not something, it's probably something architects can relate to, sort of this inanimate object having life and therefore the requirement to be minded. But actually, it's... uh, it references the fact that we're minding the pets that are within the house. And my father had two dogs and I was minding them as he was on a trip overseas. And I remember it was a beautiful September afternoon in inner Western Sydney, as I said, and it was daylight saving. There was a very striking sunset. My father's house has views out to the Parramatta River and, um, partial views to the upper level of a staircase. And I was just looking at that as I was going up and down the stairs, doing my chores, which I probably left to the last minute, being an early 20-year-old living by myself and sort of you get to a point in amongst your creative undertaking saying, oh, gee, I'm a bit hungry. I should probably cook some dinner. There's no clean dishes. I should probably clean that. Meanwhile, I've got to be somewhere tomorrow and I don't have clean clothes. And all of a sudden, all at once, you've got to get on top of something. Um, So I was busy running up and down stairs and looking out to the Parramatta River and, you know, as beautiful as it was, the thing that caught my attention more than that setting or as well as that setting 
was the fact that there was a flute player playing in the background. Now, suburban setting or semi-urban setting, semi-suburban setting, the density in this part of inner Western Sydney is, you know, up there as most parts of inner Western Sydney are. But there you have it. There was a flute player playing. And as I was running up and down stairs and looking at my guitar that was lying on the floor, I thought to myself, wow, what if I was to go outside and sit on my father's front deck and contribute to that performance? I didn't know this flute player. I couldn't see this flute player. But acoustics on that day was such that I could very much hear them. And what would it mean as an experience if you are walking around the street with your dog, with your mother, father, sister, brother, lover, doing your daily exercise, whatever it is, what would it mean to have a point where you could hear us both contributing to this improvised impromptu performance? And then maybe for acoustic reasons, not be able to hear this. Now, I didn't pick up my guitar and I didn't contribute, but it stayed with me. A year later, when I was getting into the design ideas for this soundscape space that I was creating in final year university, where I wanted this idea of sort of deconstructing a musical performance or perhaps allowing one to experience a musical performance not by statically observing or sitting static as a conventional arrangement, but actually experiencing through walking through the city, that it was an incidental encounter or an accidental encounter that added to the experience of the city as you went about your daily experience. It's not dissimilar in some respects to the experience I have going through what's called the Devonshire Street Tunnel in Sydney, which is near uh, or off Railway Square in Sydney and leads to Devonshire Street and to the Devonshire Street platforms of um, Sydney's train network. And it's a relatively long tunnel. I don't know exactly how long, but I remember many times that I've gone down and at the start you'd hear one busker that's performing. And then you walk a certain distance. And as I said, I can't recall the distance of the tunnel itself. I possibly should have looked that up for this episode, but the uh, specifics are not so relevant as the idea. Some amount of meters later, five, 10, 15 meters later, there'd be another performer. And it might be someone playing guitar. It might be someone doing something else. And then you walk a little bit further and there might be something else. And there, there's some curtilage. There's some distance between them. But what would the experience be going through that tunnel if one of those performers was playing the same song as the other performer, which you, as in person walking through the tunnel on your way to the train, didn't appreciate until you walked to, you know, performer two or performer three. They weren't playing the exact same notes. They weren't playing the exact same chords, but they were playing in harmony, in key, uh, responding to melody and rhythm to the previous performer. What would that experience be like? Similar to what I was saying in the West, in a Western setting of my father's house, that you could be on your walk around the block at a point where you appreciate the complete picture. That is the whole song, the whole performance, complete, got it. So you've got the whole. And then you walk a little bit further and one of the parts to that whole is missing, is absent. And you appreciate that part, potentially appreciate that part more so because of the absence of those other parts. Oh, I now see what that person is contributing to the performance. Walk a little bit further 
and then you hear someone else, the other performer in amongst this mix. And then you're completing a loop, and a loop is, by definition, you know, semi-circular. You start from a point, go around to another point, and ultimately come back. In this case, to your, your home. In the case of the city experience, it could be to work or the point of travel or whatever it is. And you get the complete picture again. I realized as I was preparing this podcast that, in a way, I was almost getting, uh, you know, an understanding or... I don't want to say comeuppance or because that's not the right expression either. But I was I was sort of reaching out to those musicians like I was at one point who may feel that their contribution is, you know, so sort of uh, subtle amongst the mix, mix, sorry, of sounds in a performance that they weren't as appreciated, that their contribution was somewhat intangible, or when we say tangible, it's maybe felt. You can't openly say, uh, unless you are a full technician, producer, or something along those lines, you know, what the bass guitar part is, what the drum snare is always doing. You know, that's usually limited to people that are actually creating the music or reviewing the music, producing the music, engineers, technicians, and the like. And the general populace is not appreciating that. Now, does that matter? Well, of course not. But as artists, uh, which I believe architects are, and of course musicians are, we're trying to sort of celebrate things and frame things in a different way to re, sorry, raise curiosity. And in this case, to maybe raise a different appreciation of space and place, in this case, through the positioning of sounds within the city. So as to instead of frame that element, component, through visual or tactile or other means, excuse me, you're doing it through sound. So the transition from complete picture to a smaller picture or the whole and the part happens at a significant point in the city, in the suburban setting. And in lieu of using things like, you know, an Arc de Triomphe or an obelisk or some other totem or some other, you know, datum, reference point, significant landmark, we're using sound. And how would that play out? What would that mean? And sorry, I actually said that I was recalling when I was preparing this episode and thinking about what it is that I'm trying to arrange that I was almost getting, yeah, not revenge. These sound like um, inflammatory confrontational terms. But I was recalling when I was learning to play the bass guitar, how I was a little bit perturbed or disappointed that I was was learning songs and I was quite excited about the song that I've just learnt and really wanted to, you know, as I was, I think I was 18, 19 at the time, I really wanted to show people, say, look what I've learned, look what I, you know, can play. And unless it was my friends who also played, it was my, my stepfather, my father, my mother, my sister. And on the bass guitar, I remember once I was sitting with my stepfather and I learnt a U2 song called, um, uh, I think it's called Pride in the Name of Love. And I uh, was playing the bass guitar and I was really excited because he was a big U2 fan and I thought he'd get excited and, you know, I don't know what I expected. I don't know what I thought he'd do, but when I played it, he had no idea what I was playing. I don't I don't know what that is. He sort of looked at me, you know, with incredulity, like, should I, should I know this? Is this abstract? And of course he knew the song. He loved the song. He used to play it a lot. But in his defence, as I said, he is in the same position as the general populace, well, maybe they're not appreciating the detail to the level where they can discern it, they can say what it is with 100% confidence when the rest of the picture's not there. 
it speaks volumes to the fact that, and this is a topic for another time maybe, that, you know, music and the thing we recognise and can remember the most about a musical piece is certainly not the bass guitar component necessarily, not for all songs. There's certainly quite a few, you know, Queen songs and Red Hot Chili Pepper songs and other, lots of other artists where the bass line is really to the fore of the song and you can recognise it. But for the most part, it's, you know, quite buried from a frequency perspective. It's a low frequency element. So you're feeling that groove that the bass guitar has as a connecting element between the guitar and the drums. And I promise this won't go too technical, but can you necessarily describe it and hum it perfectly? Even the guitar, even the drums, and possibly even the lyrics. Many people don't know lyric for lyric, the, the words to a song, but they can hum the melody. So if we were to say, let's deconstruct a song and give you an appreciation via walking through the city, a different appreciation of the city, a different appreciation of performance, a different appreciation of song. And what does that mean? Uh, what could that offer up as an experience? How could that, you know, bad pun, <laughs> play out? Now, I said that we were going to push some technical boundaries, so I'm not going to describe this any further in words. Instead, I'm going to play a piece on guitar. If I can get my second speaker microphone to turn on. There it is. Okay, so that is on. And let's see how this sounds. So here I am with guitar. Just get myself sort of loosened up here. And I'm not a guitar virtuoso, and the purpose of this presentation is to not show you that or dive too deep into music or guitar playing necessarily. It's more to illustrate this point through sound. If I'm really talking about this spatial experience, this three-dimensional experience of a soundscape, which is, you know, almost akin to what we used to be able to do, and some technicians might tell me there's a way we can still do it, which is on our on our speakers, on our... Uh, if we have speakers in different positions or we have, you know, CD decks or CD towers, as we used to call them. I don't even know if that was what we used to call them. Ghetto blasters, sound blasters. We could turn a dial and make all the music go to the left side. And we could see in the recording that only the elements that recorded on the left channel appear. And you appreciate, you know, as someone who's maybe interested in this, oh, wow, they've put all those components on the left side the guitar, the drum snare, and some other parts are missing. Go to the center, maybe you hear a more complete picture. Go to the right side, you hear a different picture. And so we're doing this through space and experience of space and place to give a different framing, a different understanding of both the performance and potentially of the city. So it might sound something like this. This is a recording that I uh, wrote many years ago finding it hard to play and speak, but bear with me. So say this is a complete picture, now let's um, actually hold the composure. Alright, so this is how the song sounds complete. Quite a simple progression, C shape, higher elements and boy if anyone out there is thinking of doing a podcast while speaking like this it's a bit hard to maintain your train of thought 
and maintain a rhythm that's somewhat counterpoint to how you're talking. I need to talk to a rhythm. But if this was the complete picture, that we hear on one part of our tune, and then on another part of our tune, as we walk further away from the source, part of this, or trying to, while talk. Alright, so that's one example. And because it's um, chords, it's sort of harder to sort of appreciate this um, this separation as much as something like this. This is a much more complex uh, guitar piece that, if you like, is a little bit more, uh, it just has more components. It's more complete across the, you know, available beats per minute. There's more notes uh, or more varied notes, more varied pattern than my example. It's a song by Radiohead off their, the Benz album. Uh, it's the last song on that album and it's called... Um, Street spirit brackets fade out, and uh, I'm going to probably struggle a little bit to play it uh, and talk, so just bear with me. And I certainly can't play it as fast as them while uh, talking on a podcast, but it goes like this. to be walking around the city or some part of the world and then there's a point where instead of hearing the whole thing you instead hear
bit further. Spacious. got a bit lost there I uh, hope that it uh, illustrated the idea though in music terms and you got a feel for what it was that we were trying to set up that had this idea in a way that I was trying to uh, at the time I described it as this idea to um, punch literal punch holes acoustic holes in the black box traditional performance space such that you could be walking down the street and you hear a song, in my case, a flute player. Oh, that's a flute player. And then you're walking a bit further. You're just on your daily experience. And then you just notice that suddenly that plays in harmony and melody to a busker on the street or to some other performance in that space or it's some rehearsal. And you're getting part of that experience, albeit informal, without having to be in the space. And how could that be arranged? What does that mean in the context of the city and our experience of the city? This is a investigation that I was looking into and I won't go further into the project and talk about the detailed resolution where the site is and how we position things to make that work. I'll just leave it at that as a notion that I had this idea of an experience at my father's house hearing the flute player and wondered if I was to contribute to that and then I was to push that on a more civic, you know, um, urban scale, how that might play out as an experience of the city. Um, to move completely away from music and to instead look at the idea that this concept of um, deconstructing, decentralising an art piece or an experience of an art piece and how that could play out. Let's look at an arrangement of a space very, very briefly. 
that does this. And there's lots of spaces that do this, lots of places that do this. But one, as I was preparing for this episode that I thought of that uh, does it quite well and some people might be familiar with, is the Tate Modern Industrial um, Former Powerhouse uh, Plant in London, England, that was converted into an art gallery by Herzog and de Miron in uh, originally 1994 and has uh, recently had other things done to it. In fact, 1994, uh, sorry, it was realised in 2000. The competition was in 1994 and the actual construction was finished in 2000. It's recently had some additions, but speaking to the original building by Herzog and de Miron, um, fantastic architectural firm that have won many prize, <coughs> excuse me, many publication. <coughs> well, I didn't even sing and I've got some sort of throat thing. <coughs> Former power station in, um, as I said, London, England, converted uh, many years ago. There's a particular space in the Tate Modern, which uh, is called the Turbine Hall. And that's where all the plant used to be, all the machinery and power elements. Uh, and it's this vast space uh, that is uh, just looking at a cross section here. It's, you know, these floor to ceilings in an art gallery space are, you know, relatively generous. Um, and But they're, so they're taller than normal spaces. But it's one, two, three, four, five stories tall. And um, very deep, very long. I uh, can't really speak. Oh, actually, I can speak to the metrics because I saw something here about the metrics. Here we go. 26 metres height from ground level. Uh, 3,300 metres squared, which is 155 metres long by 23 metres wide. And for some reason here, the height says 35 metres or height from ground level. So there's probably... Uh, another dimension down to a lower portion. A big space and a seriously impressive big space that Herzog and de Miron have retained many of the former industrial elements, including, you know, various hooks and gadgets and steel structure, uh, you know, beautifully, beautifully uh, presented in sort of still a relatively raw format with a new, I think it's a new burnished concrete floor, it's a really beautiful space, haunting in that it recalls the vastness of what the space was uh, prior to being converted to an art space. But it's extraordinary. And I remember going there for the first time, entering the Turbine Hall, which Herzog de Mirad really imagined as this new public space, that it's a free portion of the gallery. And for 12 years, it had what was called the Unilever installation series, uh, as in Unilever were the sponsor of this installation series for uh, um, 12 years. It changed every 12 months. And I went there when I saw an incredible installation by uh, Oliver Eliasson called The Weather Project. I also saw um, the Carsten Holler installation, which are these incredible uh, slippery dip Elements or tube-like slippery dips, partly enclosed, half enclosed or fully enclosed slippery dip-like structures. My children would have loved it. I think I also saw the Sunflower Seeds project, but I remember going for the Carsten Holler one and you could literally get knee pads, shin pads, 
they gave out helmets on some levels, and slide down from level five down to ground level or slide down from level five to level three and then take another slide down. It was this extraordinary experience of space, a huge space, a huge area for installation and incredible to experience it in full. But the weather project, uh, I feel, really did create for an amazing experience of place and space. And it's the first time I saw the space. And the weather project by Oliver Ellison was this, you know, for lack of a better term, this huge wall sconce, like a wall light in the discus shape at the end of this, uh, what do we say, 155 metre long space, sitting up, you know, I don't know, halfway up if uh, on the rear wall. And it was this light that uh, emitted... Essentially monochroic, I think is the term, light, uh, that looked like a perennial sunset, a sunset that never completed. It was extraordinary. You walked in this space and everything just looked this real beautiful raw orange. It's a bit like a dark room back in the day when you used to develop film photos, how everything was red and tones of red. You know, we still have shadows and, and the like, but it was essentially this one colour. It's so similar to this Oliver Eliasson installation. And you'd go into this space, which, as I said, was, um, what we say, 35 metres tall, uh, and just look up at the vastness of this light and the vastness of this space, which for this installation had mirror lining to the ceiling. So people were on the floor looking up. There is also a bridge platform midway that you could go up on a different level and have a different appreciation of the space. It was extraordinary. But the installation series... The, uh, the Turbine Hall, which used to have the Unilever series, and I read now that they're still installations, but they're sponsored by another, another company. Uh, I think I'm reading here that Hyundai is sponsoring. Yeah, Hyundai sponsored a few in recent years. Um, anyway, the thing that I really wanted to note is that if we go into the exhibition space at that point, the Turbine Hall at that point, we see the complete picture. That is in to link it back to this episode, the complete song. And then we go off the uh, turbine hall area to, you know, the exhibition areas, which were parallel to this huge turbine hall space along the 155 metre length, and you've got conventional exhibition spaces. And, you know, you've got glimpse views to the Thames River. I should say that it sits parallel to the Thames River. There's a bridge that's perpendicular to the main ground floor entry that is um, linked off the, I think it's the, it is the Millennial Bridge by Sir Norman Foster. And if you go in that way, you can choose, you know, what level you want to go to, the exhibitions you want to go to, some paid, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and get a more, let's call it, you know, traditional, conventional experience of the um, exhibition areas. But then there's these breakout spaces that are these little glass uh, boxes well, when I say glass, it's some components of glass that project off the um, main exhibition sort of circulation spine. So if you've got, you know, as the expression goes, exhibition legs, you're a little bit fatigued uh, from looking at artworks, paintings, sculptures or whatever, and you just want to have a rest where the stairs are, where the elevator is, there's these uh, very long windows that are landscape format. And they give you this sort of, I don't want to say panoramic because you can't turn more than 180 degrees, but almost this 180, uh, well, yeah, semi-panoramic outlook to the turbine hall. 
And in the case of the Oliver Eliasson weather project, which was super atmospheric, orange light, uh, it meant that you'd be in a traditionally lit space, the exhibition spaces, and then come out and just see this otherworldly-like light quality back into the space you may have started in or maybe you weren't even aware of. And that reveals the artwork in part, uh, fragmented, deconstructed. And, you know, you could think further on this in terms of storytelling that perhaps in one of the exhibition spaces, there's some element of some notions that Oliver Ellison was interested in, some original sketches, and then the uh, this huge glass um, outlook allows you to reflect back on that space and maybe see it in a different light, see it from a different height, because uh, these glass boxes are generally well above uh, ground level. There actually is also this open uh, semi-balcony-like area that's not behind the glass windows uh, that you can also view it on. So you get the opportunity to view that installation from different heights, different angles, different um, distances away, you know, up at level five, you could get a real close view of the, the, the light. Uh, down at level three, you can look at it from a different angle uh, compared to when you're in the space proper, where you're very much looking up at it, certainly at the very end of the installation space, like you are in a movie theater and you're cranking your net back. And this is an example of concealing, revealing the whole, the part, Etc. And in this case, through visual means, through framing components, the windows and the space proper. In the case of the music, I'm saying take one part of the music away. But I'm hoping that you can see some links, how architecturally, and I'm not saying Herzog and de Muron read my thesis I wasn't even studying in 1994 when they submitted the, um, the competition submission. But you can see that this is a way of thinking about that arrangement that I suggested through sound and an experience of sound and experience of sound performance that we could bring back to architecture, not literally to say, here's that note in that song and here's that component of the guitar in this part of this corner of this room, etc. But this idea in general, this experience of site specific space of place where you see everything and then you see glimpses uh, from another space and it gives you a different appreciation potentially of the thing you first saw originally in a more complete setting. Um, that's really it from me for now. Uh, some complex notions and hopefully the guitar components worked okay. I appreciate your time. We spoke about the relationship between music and architecture, both using a piece of music to talk to an idea for an encounter with music and performance and space and place. And Moving away from that, just looking at that idea generally, looking at this idea of a fragmented appreciation of, in the case of the Weather Project by Oliver Ellison and the Tate Modern by Herzog and de Muron, a particular place, a particular installation area from other rooms and spaces. And of course, you could imagine how this could play out in terms of a house and views to elements beyond or some other thing, some other space type. In the case of the Tate Modern, it's about looking back onto what Herzog and de Muron call this public space, albeit internal, it's a public space, uh, very much has a huge opening to the elements at one end, but it is a public space and you're looking back onto this public space and the different installations at different angles, at different heights, 
to get a different reading, a different framing, a different perspective. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I uh, would love a review. I'd love some feedback. It really helps me. If not, thanks for your time. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. See you next time. Bye for now.